This is, from our perspective, Voices of the Directly Impacted, a monthly show from Justice Radio here on WMPG with your host, Marian Anderson. Today, we're talking with a very special guest, Kayla Kalel. Kayla is a formerly incarcerated woman from Maine, a passionate advocate for people who use drugs and people who are seeking recovery. Kayla is also the co-creator of and co-founder of the Birth Justice Collective. I'm so glad to be here and be part of this conversation. Um, yeah, so I'm Kayla, and um, I'm a person in recovery and a person that previously used drugs. Um, and like you said, a person that was previously incarcerated. Another thing that feels important to share in this space is that I went to college after incarceration and focused a bachelor's degree around criminal justice reform. And if I could have named my bachelor's program abolishing prison, I would have, but they actually denied my request. So it had to be criminal justice reform. Anyways, um, I also provide doula services. So I work with folks prenate that are prenatal, birthing, or postpartum, and particularly with groups, group, groups of people that statistically don't have access to doula services. So with a couple of my dear friends um, that are also doulas in the state, we, we created the Birth Justice Collective. And a big reason for that was like, even in the year 2022, we still see um, health disparities with certain groups of people, right? So like black birthing folks still to this day experience higher rates of mortality during childbirth than their white counterpart. Also birthing folks with a medically documented history of substance use are less likely to, be, to get the support they need to be able to breastfeed their child. So it's really important that for, to me that people that want to have birth support um, have access to them. When I was incarcerated, um, I saw a lot of like really just heartbreaking and like disgusting situations happen with folks that were pregnant. So one situation particularly that I like comes to mind was this woman that was pregnant and I spent pretty much the whole duration of her pregnancy in the pods with her. So she, we were in 23 hour day lockdown and she actually went like two weeks past her due date because she wasn't getting any exercise. Um, and her OBGYN like specifically said like, you know, you need to be like able to get out more because your body is just not preparing itself for birth. But it was really awful because they they induced her and they wheeled her out um, in a wheelchair. And like within less than like 72 hours, you know, she had the baby. And very quickly, she was wheeled right back in that same wheelchair, right back into that same pod, into that same cell. I mean, like there's just like no sound that is comparable to, I mean, the cries of a woman that's just had her, her child stripped from her, right? Like that's and, and it wasn't even my experience, but that was like traumatizing for me to even witness, you know? And then I, I'm also a mom. So I have a four-year-old and an experience that I had during my birth was also like another prompter into me stepping into doula work because I, at the time of my, like my birth with Trinity, I was in recovery, you know, I was in college and really feeling empowered about like the decisions that I was making to like keep, you know, me and my child safe. You know, I wasn't using, I had almost like think three and a half years in recovery. And despite all of that, I still like, so I had a birthing doula and I had birth support, which I recognize is not true for everyone. So I was very privileged in that. But despite the fact that I, you know, I endured a 30 hour labor and was very adamant that I didn't want um, any pain medication during, during my labor, um, there was a comment made by an anesthesiologist because like 30 hours into my labor, the umbilical cord wrapped around my daughter's neck. So I ended up having to have an emergency C-section. And this person that was not part of my birth team ended up coming in and made like an offhanded comment that probably she didn't even expect me to hear, but kind of insinuating that I was drug seeking. And 
that was really eye-opening to me. Like, I was like, wow, like the stories that you hear about people, you know, being like outwardly stigmatized based on like past substance use is like, it's true. Like I was mortified. And like, you know, I have like, my mom has been supportive to me throughout my entire life. So like, she heard the comment too. And like, she, you know, really advocated for me and I was able to like advocate for myself, but those situations happen a lot. And like some of the things that I've seen, like as a birthing doula that are like also really gross are like situations where, you know, a, a gestational parent will find out that they're pregnant and like um, their doctor, you know, based on the fact that they have a history of substance use, will recommend medication assisted recovery, which is actually the gold standard for treatment for a birthing person with substance use disorder, right? So like their entire pregnancy, they might be encouraged, you know, and, and have life breathed into them around their decision to be on MAT and, you know, prescribed by a doctor doing everything that they're supposed to be doing. And then when it comes time to bring that child earth side, it's a like mandated, like requirement in the state of Maine that if a child's born to a gestational parent that's on MAT, then the Department of Health and Human Services gets called. And a moment that really should be like empowering and beautiful and memorable suddenly becomes like very scary and like anxiety ridden. And like, you know, if you ask any person that's birthed a, a child, like, you know, pretty good chance that they're going to be able to tell you step by step exactly what happened. Cause that's just like such a important moment in somebody's life. Right. So like we don't create space for people that are on MAT or in recovery to be able to have those sacred moments. It's like the second that their child's like brought earth side, they're suddenly have to defend their right to be able to care for that child. You know, I really appreciate you uh, giving us some, some context around, you know, your experiences, the things that you've witnessed and sort of what brought you to your work today. And, and today's show is really about like cycles of harm, right. And, and punishment that we use so widely in our society, you know, through the prison industrial complex jails and prisons. Uh, and how how that system really perpetuates those cycles. ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. A lot of folks don't know what that is, but essentially it's a series of questions that uh, can determine uh, a person's outcome in life, right? And if you're scoring high on an ACEs test, there's a likelihood that you will have substance use disorder or that you will end up in jail or prison. And so, you know, when we're talking about providing access to people who are birthing, whether that's... It, inside of a prison or a jail or outside of a prison or a jail, we really need to think about how that experience in and of itself impacts the child, right? Because we often center the conversation, like, you know, you had just said, mm, this should be a memorable experience. This should be beautiful, right? This, this is something that someone could tell you that they went through from A to B, but then you start throwing things in like DHS, right? Uh, and family policing and other forms of, of violence, other systems in place that cause and perpetuate cycles of harm. You know, we, we often hear about that, but don't really think about what that means or what that actually looks like. So I'd like to hear from you about, about your experiences with that. Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind is just like the simple fact that one of the ACE questions, like one of the, the markers for, you know, having an increased chance for having substance use disorder or having criminal justice involvement um, is, have you had a parent or do you have a parent that is currently incarcerated? So like right off the bat, the simple, like we are already, you know, like you said, we're creating the next generation of broken people when we, you know, are punishing moms quote unquote but also like you know ensuring that that newborn baby doesn't have their 
you know, gestational parent. And there's like all kinds of studies around the fact that like, we know that um, children that don't have access to their, you know, birthing parents within the first two weeks of life cannot achieve like proper brain development. Like that, I mean, that blows my mind. And like, we know all of these things, right? Within our systems. And yet we still do things that we know create harm. And like, that's just wild to me. And there's, there's actually a TED talk by a doctor called Gaber Mate. And he talks about how um, he was born in Budapest, Hungary in 1944 into a Jewish family. And he like cried for like the first like two months of his life. And his mom couldn't figure out why. Uh, And when she called the pediatrician, the pediatrician said, you know, I can come see him, but every Jewish baby that I'm like seeing, you know, is, is crying. And it wasn't because like, you know, Jewish newborns were experts in genocide, right? Or like they knew anything about war. It was because their, their moms and dads were like walking around with like, you know, increased fear and like worry that, you know, their homes were going to be ripped open by soldiers, you know? So that just speaks to like how connected we are with our children. And when we incarcerate moms, we incarcerate entire families, essentially, you know, and really entire communities. Yeah, it it is crazy. You know, it's fascinating. I, I appreciate you sharing that story. You know, we don't realize the impact or the connection that exists between a gestational parent and and their child. And you're right. We know these things are harmful, right? We have the evidence. We we we've we've got the science. We've got the facts. And yet we continue to do these things. We practice these ways of perpetuating cycles of harm that just carry over generationally. I was just going to say like one thing that also just like kind of popped in my head was after I um, was in prison, I was asked to speak on a bill that was specific to ensuring that the Department of Corrections like required a higher level like standard of care for people that were pregnant and 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 trying to breastfeed. And it was so crazy to me because the lady that runs the prison ended up coming to that like legislative session and standing up and and like insisting that that was the standard of care that they were already giving folks. And so she said that, you know, the bill shouldn't be passed. And then she actually stood up previous to anyone speaking and asked the, like the folks that were voting on the bill, if she could speak first, because she said that, she said there's like eight or nine women in here that were incarcerated, like under my care. And she's like, it would be too hard for me to hear their stories. And like, you know, it'd be emotional. And like, for me, that's like, if we have like a, a, a system where the person that's like, you know, running the entire system can't look us in the eye and hear our experiences, like that system is very, very, very disrupted, right? Like, and it's sort of like, yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I see similar stories and headlines all the time, right? Like Randall Liberty talking about how they don't use solitary confinement when I know people who are inside right now who are in solitary confinement. Um, you know, there's this sort of... <laughs> Uh, outward facing, everything is fine. We're doing the best we can and we're saving lives and we're improving the lives of people who are in jail and prisons, but really you're destroying them. You know, yeah. we, we be offering services like services that, that you're offering today. Um, so I have a question for you about that. You know, best case, best case scenario for a person, for a woman uh, who's in jail or prison while pregnant would be that, you know, she has family on the outside or or someone on the outside that could take 
custody of of that child until she is released. But often that is not the case. You know, often DHS does get involved, uh, steps in and and takes the child and the child is placed in foster care, which is just family policing. So I'm wondering in, in your current work, whether or not you're allowed to provide services to people who are incarcerated first and foremost, and if not, if there are ways that you can access or ways that women could access what services you do provide, maybe once they're released, um, or how how that's coming together for you, because I know that it, you know your intention behind creating this collective was was largely based on witnessing the things that you you witnessed, you know, and that you experienced firsthand. So trying to bring those two worlds together, what does that look like? So um, I know that some of the advocates that um, are part of the Birth, Ju- Birth Justice Collective were actually approved to go into the prison and talk with folks. And then for some like silly reason, they got, oh, actually they put in a visitor request form to see like a specific person. And as a result, like their right to be able to go into the prison altogether was like taken away. But that's on a professional level. So I can say that like even taking away like the, the term doula, right? Like just having somebody there to like create space for you and like, you know, stop the cycles of harm and be able to like encourage you to like find your voice and remind you who you are, all of that. I mean, that can be done just like on a front level. So even if we do have barriers put up, like that the prison won't let us in or whatever, like it doesn't have to be, you know, like professionally, you know, we, we can stand in community with each other. And that's another thing that I kind of wanted to like talk about was, you know, we talk about cycles of harm and we talk about like generational trauma and like it's, it happens and it's, and it's tragic and it's awful. And we've seen it for like, you know, generations, but we also see like generational resilience. And like, I think that there is so much to be said about like the fact that, you know, we have all of these cycles of harm that we we're up against. Right. And like, so many of the people that I met when I was incarcerated or, you know, the folks that I work with under doula care, like, you know, have to deal with all of these things and yet still find ways to be in community with each other and like find ways to show up for each other. And um, I think, you know, I just wanted to highlight that because it's pretty amazing when, you know, all the cards are stacked against you and yet you still like find the capacity and the resilience to be able to like find hope and like hold on to it and like make sure that everybody else around you finds hope you know like some of the things that when I was incarcerated like that woman that had you know she had her baby while she was in in the pods we weren't able to like really like hug her or anything because we were in 23 hour day lockdown but I remember like us all voting on like what she was going to name her baby because she wanted like all of us to be a part of that and like you know so I think that the biggest thing that we can do is just like stand in community with each other and like show up you know and like the ways that we show up for each other, like can never be measured, right? Like I think of times in my life, um, you know, as a parent where I felt like, you know, like um, I was talking about my own birth experience and like how just based on the fact that I was known to be a previous drug user, I had to, I had to be investigated, you know, and I was at a point in my life where I had like a month before received an award in Washington, DC and like was doing a lot of advocacy work, you know, but like when I was being asked all those questions, I mean, I had my newborn baby in my arms, right? And like, I didn't use the entire time I was pregnant and they tested her meconium and it was negative and all these things, right? But the way that I was being interrogated made me feel like I was this big. And like, I, even though I was wearing all these hats and doing all these things, like I couldn't remember those things, right? Because suddenly I felt like, you know, the way she's asking those questions, like makes me feel like I'm back in prison again. And like, 
I don't have rights and I have to like justify my right to be able to care for my child, you know? So like, I think just like creating space and reminding people who the heck they are and how much power they hold, you know? I hear what you're saying. And I have some experiences of my own that are very similar, you know, of, of women coming together while incarcerated, showing up for each other. But uh, we're gonna take a quick break and, and we'll get back to this as soon as that break is over. You are listening to From Our Perspective, Voices of the Directly Impacted here on Justice Radio with your host, Marian Anderson. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are talking with Kayla Kalel about cycles of harm, her experiences of incarceration, and how those experiences have influenced the work that she does today. Welcome back, Kayla. Thanks for joining us today. Before the break, you were talking about how important it is to create space, to come together in community and show up for our people. You know, it reminded me of a couple of of experiences when I was incarcerated. I also was the cellmate of a woman who had given birth while incarcerated and witnessed, um, you know, significant decline overall for this woman when she returned from the hospital without her baby, you know, and we really did come together. You know, we might've only been outside of our cells for two hours a day, you know, but there were cards being made and slid under doors, you know, and, and uh, commissary cakes being made and, and trying to find some sense of, of community, of, of safety, of, of having a space that was loving and caring and empathetic to, to her experience, you know, and then on the opposite end of that too, I remember a time I was in with another woman who was losing parental rights and we really all came together at that point too. She was having to meet with DHS to have like the goodbye meeting with her children and she was able to bring them each like one one token, uh, um, one gesture, right, of like goodbye. And so the women came together and made blankets, made huge, comfy, you know, crocheted blankets to give to her children at her goodbye meeting. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see those things happening consistently. It's not just a one and done, right? This is the normal everyday occurrence inside jails and prisons across the world for women who are having children. And I, and of course, that has a generational impact, right? Of course it does. I mean, if you're growing up <laughs> without your, without your parents, I mean, it, it's just, it's profound that we have so much data on the harm that this causes, yet we continue to practice it. And and I know that you had mentioned wanting to talk about a census that was done. Um, so I'm going to kick it back to you. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Marianne. Um, yeah. So there was a census done by Maine Department of Corrections um, in 2018. And a couple of the statistics were super striking to me because so at, when that census was taken, 72% of the, the women that were incarcerated had experienced multiple adverse child experiences. So, I mean, if you just take that statistic alone, you could basically add 20 years on and you know interview their children and the same thing would be true, right? Because we know that one of the factors is having a parent that's incarcerated. And then 74% of women that were incarcerated at that time were mothers. So again, you know, we're already creating the, you know, a high, a high score scoring chart for the ACEs for that child. Um, and then 90% of women were serving time that was related to a substance use disorder. And we know that like, 
substance use disorder shouldn't be criminalized. It's a public health issue and it needs to be treated by a doctor, you know? So that, those were like really glaring to me. And uh, something else I just wanted to kind of touch on was like, it is so common for family separation to be the norm, right? And like the idea that we taking, you know, fam splitting families apart is in the best interest of the child is completely like outlandish, right? Um, and one thing I kind of remind, you know, birthing folks that that don't get to go home with their with their child, right? Even after doing everything in their power to do the next right thing and to and to care for their their child and themselves in the best way that they know how. As a gestational parent, when you carry a child inside you, there's actually a biological life change that happens to your brain. So like I just kind of remind folks that like, you know, you can't be with your child right now, but like you and your child have both been like altered for life. So you're like connected in that way, you know? You know, that statement, that reminder alone um, brings comfort, you know, and and hope, uh, which is often the only thing folks who are incarcerated have left, right, is, is hope. But, you know, getting back to how we've normalized sp splitting up families, how we've normalized taking children from their parents and how that is an everyday practice, it's unfathomable to me when we consider the actual numbers, like, you know, you said in, in the census that was done, you know, those numbers haven't changed too much uh, over the last couple of years. I just did some research myself and 74% of the people who are currently incarcerated in Maine are incarcerated uh, on drug related charges. Uh, most of them have substance use disorder, which obviously is a public uh, health issue. And I think it was 55% of the women who are currently incarcerated. Um, so those are, those are still staggering numbers, you know, and yet still we're choosing to criminalize people instead of offer them the services in our community that they need to be able to show up to their own lives, to be parents, right. Uh, to keep their children, to provide, um, safe and loving homes. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's astounding. There was actually one more thing I was just thinking about that I didn't touch on is the fact that women that you know, birthing folks that are incarcerated, like very rarely have access to the ability to, you know, breastfeed or breast pump. And I mean, there's all kinds of health outcomes that we know about breastfeeding, right? Like babies that are able to breastfeed have higher IQs, less ear infections. I mean, there's just like a whole plethora of information that we know to be true about, you know, how healthy it is to be able to breastfeed and breast pump, both like mentally and physically for mom and child. So like, that is another thing that we, uh, I mean, a grave disservice that we do to babies, you know? Yeah, for sure. When you think about the number of children being birthed while, a, you know, parent is incarcerated and the number of children that are going out with just that one thing, you know, they're, they're going without just the one thing alone that would greatly increase, <laughs> you know, long life, um, healthy yeah. living. Um, and, and, you know, we, we're stripping them we're shipping them of that alone. Um, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy when you think about all the ways in which we do our communities uh, a huge disservice. You know, you mentioned earlier in the show that, that really women are what hold together entire communities. And it's true, right? Um, often when you have uh, single parent homes, the mom is the, is the caretaker, right? Um, you know, we actually, it reminds me, we have we have some legislation coming up, some priority legislation coming up this next session around a primary caretaker's bill, right? 
uh, which essentially would ask a judge to consider community-based alternative sentencing for primary caretakers because it's not in the best interest of children to be taken from their, their families. It's not in the best interest of a mom to lose her child. It is not in the best interest of our communities overall, right? Because generationally, what we're going to see, like you said, 20 years from now, is those same children scoring high on ACEs and having uh, similar life outcomes. So, yeah, and yeah. It's crazy to me too like I think when we talk about this stuff like we can't tease out we can't separate like so often everything is kind of lumped into like substance use right like people will say oh it's because of the mom's substance use that all of this happened when if you really look at it I mean very little of the consequences that people face and like the systems that you know basically oppress them has to do with the actual substance use itself. I mean, it has to do with the way that we react to substance use, right? Like incarcerating parents and not offering them like proper um, mental health treatment while they're there or substance use treatment and then taking their children away. Like, you know, those are, those are reactions to substance use, not actually from the substance use itself, you know? And we can't separate those things out for a lot of people. So it's, it's it becomes not as glaring to some. And I think that that's why these, you know, conversations are so important. Yeah, well, you know, and, and even thinking a step further, when you're when you're talking about substance use, uh, more often than not, substance use is is a manifestation of trauma, right? It's a direct response to what we're talking about today. This this adverse childhood experiences. Um, you know, I didn't use drugs because my life was great, and I thought it would be a good idea to become addicted to heroin, right? I use drugs as a means to try to cope with uh, circumstances in my life that were outside of my control, things that happened to me, things that were traumatic that um, I didn't know how to get through or overcome alone. Uh, and yeah. so, yeah, you know, taking it, taking it back a step further, it's like not only are we not addressing the issue we're not looking at what the actual issue is right we're criminalizing people who are using drugs without asking why they use drugs and without giving them resources to actually address the core causes or the root causes of why substance use disorder is a thing in their lives right and then we're causing generations after them uh to, to suffer the same end right it's it's like just this vicious cycle and so until like you said until we start coming together in community um and and really creating safe spaces where people are receiving the services they need have access to uh you know services that they need then we're not going to make much for for change um and it's unfortunate it really is Oh, I was just going to say, so one thing that TED talk that I was talking about, I found it so interesting because the doctor that did the TED talk, he, he spent his life's research around studying substance use disorder. And that um, I was talking earlier about how, you know, children cannot achieve proper brain development when they don't have access to gestational parents during the first two weeks of life. And what that doctor found when he did his research was the part of the brain that becomes underdeveloped like from adverse childhood experiences like abuse or being separated from families is actually the, the creation of dopamine. So like we are like, so essentially kids that don't have access to their parents or are experiencing, you know, harm don't have the natural correct receptors that create like internal motivation and happiness. Right. So like that makes perfect sense that they would then be at a higher you know, higher susceptibility to have substance use disorder because you're looking for dopamine at, from an outside source, you know? 
yeah, yeah. it's it's incredible research you know when when we actually take a look at at the facts of, of the research that's been done of the years and years and years of studies that have that have taken place you know it seems so simple when we're talking about solutions, when we're looking at the facts for various reasons, which we don't get into, we won't get into today on the show. Right. But for various right. reasons, we choose, we choose to continue perpetuating cycles of violence through punishment, through criminalization. Everything we need is laid out before us in terms of the next right thing as a society that we should be doing to ensure that generations to come are not growing up with the same life outcomes as their parents. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kayla. It was wonderful having you on the show. For now, uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up today, and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Marianne. I I really appreciate you offering the space. This is so important. I mean, it's 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 just it's imperative. I, I agree, and and I can't thank you enough, Kayla. So next week, please join Linda Small and Mackenzie Kelly in Creating Windows, Not Bars on Justice Radio when they speak with Maine Prisoner Reentry Network's founder, Bruce Nodden, about what's available and what's missing in our communities for people coming home from jails and prisons. In the meantime, check out the Maine Free Her campaign at the-council.us forward slash free her, where you can sign up to volunteer for local events and join the movement to end the incarceration of women and girls. I'd like to give a special thanks to blues man uh, Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode of our series. We'll be back next month.